It's Sunday, June the 23rd, 1946, in Warwick, England. It's a moonless June midnight on Theatre Street, Warwick, and PC Arthur Collins is looking forward to getting into bed. His weekends feel all too short, and tomorrow he's up early to hit the beat all over again. At 30 years of age, he has a decade of service under his belt with the Warwickshire Police. In bed, his young wife Marjorie is already asleep. As he slinks his arm gently around her shoulders to kiss her goodnight, a soft summer breeze slips in through the open window. And in that moment, on that breeze, a distant but clear sound carries through into the room. The unmistakable sound of breaking glass. From just across the street, in fact. Without a second thought, PC Collins is up and hurrying into the uniform he had laid out for morning. He knows that the adjacent warehouse is packed full of goods. He knows that there was already a break-in nearby not that long ago. The thing he, nor his wife, have any way of knowing is that their lives are about to change forever. At the door, as Collins steps into his boots, Marjorie calls down to him, you be careful now, Arthur. Gripping his truncheon firmly, he nods. I will, love. Theatre Street is dead quiet. The windows of the old stone houses darkened. All are abed. The recent robbery that PC Collins had heard of took place just around the corner, at the civil defence stores. On that occasion, they'd stolen a load of gum boots. 42 pairs, in fact. The total value of which was over 46 pounds nearly two months' wages to a cop like Collins. Breaking into a business, plundering its wares, and leaving the owner to pick up the pieces. That's unacceptable to PC Collins at the best of times. But right now, just as the country is pulling itself out of the rubble of war, despicable. Well, he's not about to let another robbery unfold on his patch, much less in a building just over the road from his flat. In the marketplace across the street stands the Buyers and Sellers Agency, a place to trade in electrical goods for money or to purchase restored second-hand electronics, a vital resource in these times. Colin sees immediately that one of the store's windows is broken. And now, PC Collins can see movement inside. Multiple figures. He understands the scene in a split second. He's about to catch the robbers in the act. Sure enough, three men come clambering out the window with their haul of stolen cameras, radios, and a portable gramophone carried between them. Raising his truncheon and blowing his whistle, PC Collins yells at them to stop where they are. In the gloom, a tense silence follows, a standoff. On the one hand, they're only 200 yards from the nearby police station, with an officer of the law trying to apprehend them. On the other, Collins is alone and outnumbered. Maybe the robbers consider the consequences, maybe not. But the course of action they choose is pure, brutal savagery. Collins, as his truncheon snatched from his hand and turned on him, his whistle wheezing to an abrupt halt as the first blow knocks it from his lips. He is struck repeatedly over the head, and then as he falls, the body it is a brutal attack. And in the heat of the moment, as the blows rain down, it seems as though this won't stop at just a beating. But now, a woman is amongst the men, throwing herself in the way as she screams, help, murder, police, 
It's Marjorie Collins, who has seen the horror from her bedroom window. Now her husband is lying on the ground, limp and covered in blood. Though she is a slight woman, dressed in nothing more than her nightdress, she is desperate and will do anything to save the man she loves from these thugs. Marjorie launches herself at the main attacker, grabbing him by the jacket. She receives a vicious punch to the head for her trouble. And as she falls to the floor, still clutching her assailant's jacket, the lapel tears clean off in her hand. She can't know it yet, but everything hinges on this moment. This one instinctive action, a brave reflex driven by love, will be the key to unlocking an atrocious mystery. One that will spark a major manhunt and require all the craft, cunning and determination of a Scotland Yard legend. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. For all the heroism and sacrifice showcased in World War II, the chaos and uncertainty of the conflict gave a platform to the worst kind of criminal. Murderers hid bodies in bombed-out houses, their victims often assumed to have been killed by the blasts. Thieves tugged rings from the hands of dead firemen and volunteers. Break-ins occurred in the midst of air raids, crooks working even as German bombs fell. Even petty crime levels soared as purse strings tightened. To make matters worse, Police officers were in short supply, since most of the eligible men were serving on the front. The country found itself in the grip of a crime wave, which could only begin to be combated once peace came. Now, as Britain picks itself up from the carnage of war and is able to look to its own shores once again, crime rates slowly begin to drop. The public expects better times ahead, 
Still, this doesn't mean that the villains and opportunists have suddenly called a truce. Which is why the events of June the 23rd, 1946, while shocking, are not completely out of the blue. Sadly, a policeman battered half to death for the sake of 70 pounds worth of electrical goods is all too believable in this day and age. Back in Theatre Street, Marjorie's screams summon duty officers from the local police station, not 200 yards away. Rushing to the scene, they find her cradling her unconscious husband, covered in his blood. Between pitiful sobs, she tells the officers about the three thugs who had set upon her husband and beaten her when she tried to intervene. Seeing PC Collins' battered body lying half dead on the ground, his colleagues are outraged and distraught. He is quickly transported to hospital in nearby Birmingham, and the officers do their very best to support his loving wife, guiding her back to the station while reassuring her that PC Collins is in the best hands now. Between them, angry glances are exchanged. They know time is of the essence. Whoever is responsible for this attack has gone after one of their own and would have killed him if his wife hadn't stepped in. They need to find the attacker and fast, but they've long since vanished into the mists, leaving no clues behind. Not even an hour after the horrific attack, still covered in her husband's blood, Marjorie Collins sits in a small interview room facing the lead detectives in the Warwickshire force. They're hoping Marjorie can light their way. As tactfully as they can, they ask for a statement. But she's ashen-faced, fists clenched, still clearly in a state of great shock. Perhaps unsurprisingly, she's unable to give a clear account of what happened. When asked to run through the sequence of events, she can only recall trying to get in the way of the thugs, putting herself between the truncheon and her husband's battered body. They ask her what the men looked like. Trying to recall the blur of violence, it all happened so quickly in the dark, she can't give great detail there either. The one that was hitting Arthur was large, she says. I took him by the jacket lapel with a firm grip. Then he knocked me down. A jacket lapel? What kind of jacket? At this, something shifts in her, as though the fog of shock is suddenly passing. Looking down, she opens her tightly clenched fist to reveal a piece of cloth. The full lapel torn from the attacker's jacket. Could this scrap of material lead them to the thugs who did this? The morning after the attack, June the 24th, tempers are running high. Not just in the Warwickshire Constabulary, but also throughout the local community. PC Collins had a decade of service to his name and is a well-known face in Warwick daily life. Police cars with attached loudspeakers crawl through the surrounding districts, appealing for information or witnesses. The public wants to help, but nobody can say who the violent thugs were. PC Collins' blood-spattered uniform, truncheon, lamp and helmet have been collected as evidence, but a search of the buyers and sellers agency has given up little in the way of clues. The previous break-in at the civil defence stores nearby is noted as a likely connection. Still, the most promising lead looks to be the scrap of cloth Marjorie Collins had torn from the jacket of her husband's would-be killer. Detectives examine it now in the cold light of day. It's a lapel from a dark double-breasted jacket 
with a pattern of blue and chalk. Local tailors, seamstresses, clothiers and outfitters are all pulled from their breakfast tables, bathrooms and stores to examine the piece of cloth. But no one seems to recognise it. Meanwhile, cops have been sent out to search rubbish bins, empty lots and anywhere else someone might toss or burn a torn jacket. They too find nothing. Their only lead seems to be a bust. Undeterred, the police spend days questioning anyone they can to find the identity of the robbers turned attackers, gathering a list of names to pursue. Somebody, somewhere, will know who did this. They just need to ask the right questions. On Friday the 28th of June, PC Collins regains consciousness. He wakes to find a detective at his side who gently probes for information. But poor Arthur Collins took many heavy blows to the head. To the detective's dismay, he cannot recall anything of use. Given the severity of the attack and how close Collins had come to death, the offence has now been classified as attempted murder. Almost certainly, if Marjorie had not intervened, the officer would not be here now. After nine full days of dead ends and frustration, local detectives realise they can go no further. Help is needed. The Chief Constable of Warwickshire gives them the nod. Call in the yard. Detective Superintendent Robert Fabian is known to all as Fabian of the Yard. He smiles often and is always well-mannered, but his small eyes are piercing. Behind them lies a ferocious intelligence, a sharpened blade that slices through falsehoods and exposes underlying truths. Dressed impeccably in his sharp suit, bowler hat and pipe, he's not a tall man, but he has the bearing of a giant. He was born in Lewisham to working class parents and had little formal education. He's worked his way up to his current role through grit, determination and sheer bloody mindedness. To him, Scotland Yard is the brain of Great Britain's man-hunting machine. He is arguably the Yard's most famous detective and his four guiding principles are routine, detail, science and tenacity. Now, at 45 years old, he's a Scotland Yard legend. With some 25 years experience behind him in the police, Fabian has a list of famous arrests and commendations fallen out of his pockets. And so, for the Warwickshire cops, he's a godsend. And this is not his first time in Warwickshire. Just over a year before the attack on PC Collins, Fabian had been called to the area to help investigate the murder of a farm labourer in Lower Quinton, known as the Witchcraft Murder. That case is one of the few that has foiled Fabian in his long career, and he vows that this time he will not be leaving Warwickshire empty-handed. Hi listeners, John Hopkins here. We hope you enjoy this trailer for Noise's new show, Detectives Don't Sleep. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, with new episodes airing every Tuesday. What makes a great detective? If you arrived at a crime scene, would you have what it takes to crack the case wide open? Would you spot the vital clue that everyone else has missed? Could you unravel the suspect's perfect alibi? And could you confront a murderer? Introducing Detectives Don't Sleep, the new whodunit podcast from Noiser. Each week, we'll take you beyond the police tape 
to shadow the real detectives who worked history's most intriguing cases. You'll be right there, solving a murder on the beaches of the Bahamas, busting neo-Nazi art dealers in the back streets of Europe, and unmasking conmen in Beverly Hills. These detectives, they all have one thing in common. They can never truly rest until they've closed the case. Listen to Detectives Don't Sleep wherever you get your podcasts. Joining D.S. Fabian on the trip up from London is the equally experienced Detective Sergeant Arthur Vesey. Though Vesey is affectionately known by his colleagues as Squeaker for his rather high-pitched tenor voice, he's not a man to be trifled with. This was a fact learned the hard way by a group of violent robbers in London. When they tried to flee arrest, they found themselves unceremoniously halted in their tracks by the ox of a man that was D.S. Vesey. If Fabian is a smiling scalpel, Vesey is a scowling sledgehammer, and a fine pair they make. Upon arriving in Warwickshire, Fabian and Vesey appraise the investigation so far. It's plain that local cops have done a solid job, leaving no stone unturned. But now it's time to think a little bigger. It's said that clothes maketh the man. But who maketh the clothes for the man? Without being able to fill in that blank, the men from Scotland Yard know they're unlikely to advance much further than their local colleagues have. Fabian has always been fond of leveraging the press against crooks wherever possible, understanding that headlines can reach far and wide. Immediately, he has the lapel that Marjorie Collins tore from the attacker's jacket, photographed and printed in every newspaper in the land. At the same time, he and DS Vesey set up a desk in the window of the local newspaper office with the piece of cloth hung in the window for all to see. There, Fabian and Vesey sit, inviting anyone who recognizes the cloth to come in and talk to them. He's confident this publicity will turn up a lead, and he's quickly proved right. In the sweltering June heat, the detectives sit patiently taking down details as various people came in to swear that it was the same suit worn by their lodger, or that man who drinks too much, or the local grocer. Tired and grown skeptical of their strategy, Vesey lights up a cigarette, looking up as a tanned young man with a sharp military-style moustache comes in. Uh, that uh, bit of cloth, he says, it's a bit of demob suit, absolutely certain. While it's a breakthrough, the news knocks the wind out of Fabian's sails. A demob suit is a standard suit issued to demobilized members of the armed forces. This outfit included shoes, underwear, shirts, a raincoat, a hat, and crucially, a suit. In the summer of 1946, they'd been handing them out in spades to airmen, sailors, and soldiers at a rate of perhaps 100,000 every month. Even by DS Fabian standards, that's a big haystack. But it is a lead and could at least focus the search considerably. Fabian is now likely looking for a former military man. However, more than two million such demob suits have been issued since the end of the war. And not only that. Further complicating the matter is the possibility of a resale. In these hard times, black markets have flourished. What if the attacker had simply bought the demob suit from a spiv? It could end up in another dead end, but Fabian and Vesey have little choice but to follow it. 
With a heavy heart, DSVZ stubs out his cigarette and squeaks. D-mob suits? There's millions of them. Not all of the same pattern, though, Fabian replies grimly. And he's right. He may have just stumbled upon the only saving grace of this troublesome clue. It's rather distinctive pattern. Following this new lead, detectives Fabian and Vizi travel together to nearby Birmingham, site of the nearest branch of the Ministry of Supply. There, they explain the situation and show the scrap of cloth Marjorie had ripped from the attacker to the attending civil servant. The Ministry employee quickly identifies it. The patent's official registration number is patent number DES 1012. Definitely a D-mob suit, the man confirms. He tells them that the fabric was manufactured by Fox Brothers in Wellington, Somerset. Their records show that some 5,000 yards of the fabric had been produced, most of which was sent to two factories right here in Birmingham. But not all of it. Around 900 yards of the would-be killer's patterned fabric was also sent to a factory in Glasgow. Wherever the attacker's suit came from, it's surely one of these two cities. It's a start. Fabian and Vizi begin with the two Birmingham factories, as they're already in town. At the first, they discover, to their delight, that the fabric is still in their warehouses, yet to be turned into suits. That's good news, because it narrows the scope of their search further. At the second factory, the story is the same. Pattern number DES 1012, asks the work manager. No, we haven't started using it yet. He blinks, looking up from his forms. Anything else you want to know? Yes, says Fabian, excitement tingling in his voice. When is the next train to Glasgow? In Glasgow, with the evening lights gleaming in store windows, the detectives make their way to the Fraser Ross factory, proffering the cloth scrap they now know is called number DES 1012. They find a buyer still in his office. But when they ask him if he bought 900 yards of the fabric, he shakes his head with slow consideration. That's not correct, he says in his deep Scottish burr. Fabian's heart sinks, but the man smiles. It was 875 yards. He directs them to the supervisor who looks at the torn lapel and confirms that it was made here. Stitchings like handwriting, he says. You can tell the work of one man's fingers from that of a thousand of his mates. And that's exactly the kind of forensic detail Fabian loves. With that, the supervisor bellows across the long, busy workroom, calling one of his workers over. A cramped, elderly craftsman who approaches is introduced only as Mac. Not only does he recognize the stitching as his own, but he remembers using that fabric, DES 1012 for a very specific suit. A particularly large suit for a tall individual standing at over six feet two inches in height with a 45-inch chest. Fabian and Vizi look at each other and ask if he's absolutely certain. But Mac is adamant. With that pattern and in that size, there is only one suit out there that would be missing a lapel like this. The needle has suddenly appeared in that haystack. Barely able to contain themselves, the detectives ask the supervisor if he has details of which ex-serviceman the suit was sent to. 
Opening his book, he thumbs through the pages with an expert finger until he taps a name. Ah yes, here we are. The suit was sent to Nine Holly Place in Birmingham, he says. Delivered to one Mr. Sutcliffe. Once again, it looks as if Fabian of the Yard has his man. Patrick Dominic Sutcliffe is arrested on July the 2nd in the village of Wilmcote, barely 10 miles from where P.C. Collins almost had his head stoved in. He is over six foot two with a broad chest, and he confirms he was discharged from the army some 18 months ago. But Sutcliffe outright denies he was involved in the attack in any way whatsoever. In fact, he claims he was in Birmingham at the time. Well, the detectives are having none of it, and he's promptly transferred to Warwick Police Station, where he is, perhaps unfortunately for him, placed in a room with VZ alone. We can only imagine what went on in there, and of course, no one would care to comment. But when this surly detective sergeant emerges, Sutcliffe is now, rather miraculously, willing to talk. I'll tell the whole story, he swears. Sutcliffe now admits that he and two other men had gone to the buyer's and seller's agency on the night of the 23rd with the intention of robbing it. But they had been interrupted by Collins. The policeman came running up, he says, and I lost my head. I hit him a number of times. Then a woman came up and said something, but I didn't hit her. I may have pushed her, but I didn't hit her. I threw the policeman's staff away, then I jumped in the car and drove off. By the time Vesey has extracted this confession from Sutcliffe, Marjorie Collins has also arrived and identifies him as the attacker. Warwick police now have the full picture, and a flurry of arrests follow. Thomas Joseph Parkinson of Birmingham admits to breaking into the property with the others, but denies touching PC Collins. William George Evans is next to be collared, also admitting to the break-in. Then, a man called Anthony Richard Allen admitted lending his car to Sutcliffe on the night of the crime. It is Allen who now paints a picture of the aftermath of the attack. Sutcliffe was in a hell of a mess, he says. He arrived at the house of our friend, Gerdas Ram. His jacket was torn. He looked as though he'd been in a roughhouse. Sutcliffe told me he hit the copper with his own truncheon, then burned his clothes later on in a fire. It is the 25th of July, a month after the brutal attack that nearly ended P.C. Collins's life. It's the day of the committal proceedings. An angry crowd gathers outside court, loudly jeering the prisoners as they arrive. Gerdas Ram and Anthony Richard Allen are charged with receiving stolen property, as well as harboring Sutcliffe. For his part, Sutcliffe is looking at an attempted murder charge, along with two breaking offences. But he maintains he never intended to hurt P.C. Collins in such a fashion. He simply lost control. For their crimes against him, the attackers will face trial in Northampton. For his part, Collins himself is unable to attend proceedings. He's only just been released from hospital after weeks inside, and he is to remain at home for a long time to come, convalescing. A few months later, the trial in Northampton begins, but it does not prove to be a roaring success for the prosecution. Allen and Ram are only found guilty of harboring Sutcliffe, and both are sentenced to three months. Evans is given 12 months with hard labor, while Parkinson's military record is factored into a lesser six-month sentence of hard labor. 
More importantly, the attempted murder charge hanging over Sutcliffe has been downgraded. In place of this, he admits to wounding PC Collins with intent to resist arrest. Despite the charge being reduced, he is reminded that, had it not been for Marjorie's bravery, he would likely have been standing in the dock for murder. Sutcliffe is given a year with hard labor for the break-in and just four years of penal servitude for the brutal attack on PC Collins. The sentences do not, arguably, reflect the severity of the violence suffered by Collins. But for the Warwickshire Constabulary, it is at least a result. The crooks were caught, even if almost every man in blue thinks the punishments are too light. Then again, the evidence against the robbers all but hinged on a scrap of cloth and a confession given perhaps not so freely. Certainly, Sutcliffe had not gone out that night intent on taking the life of P.C. Collins. For the Chief Constable, the light sentences do not deter the celebratory feeling. As such, he and his wife throw a garden party, and Detectives Fabian and Vizi are the celebrated guests. Both men would go on to be commended by the Metropolitan Police back in London. For Vizi, it is arguably one of the highlights of his career. For Fabian, incredibly, it is his 40th commendation, and it would prove to be his last. After the Sutcliffe conviction, Fabian still has several years left in the tank, but this case was his final high. Few men in the history of the yard can claim such a brilliant track record. In his long career, he faced down some of the most formidable and colourful criminality in the land. Robert Delaney, the first cat burglar, whose tools were a tuxedo, a length of black silk rope, and his own cunning. Eddie, the villain Manning, who ran drugs, pimped sex workers, and shot men in the legs. Brilliant Chang, a restaurateur turned cocaine baron, responsible for addiction, misery, and overdose. Fabian even defused an IRA gelignite bomb in Piccadilly Circus, for which he was awarded the King's Police Medal for Gallantry. Perhaps rather uniquely, he was respected on both sides of the aisle. On the same night he had received his award at the palace, he was later invited to a crowded billiards hall, packed with crooks and underworld figures, the very men he hunted. There, a notorious gang leader made a warm speech in his honor and handed him an altogether different kind of medal. It was inscribed to Detective Inspector Bob Fabian for bravery 24-639 from the boys. But for all these highs, what of the young man whose horrific ordeal had occasioned the garden parties and commendations? PC Collins didn't return to duty until February of the next year, and when he did, he was not the same. As the police surgeon who had testified in Northampton said, while the man would continue his recovery, he would be unlikely to ever regain his full strength or his mental fortitude. Despite this senseless and unjust fate, Collins met his circumstance with light-heartedness, at least externally. His colleagues could scarcely believe that a man so undeserving of suffering might bear it so bravely. Collins was left with constant head pain, losing in great part his sense of taste and smell. Yet he couldn't afford to be discharged from the police force. With only 11 years service under his belt, to do so now would result in a paltry pension. The best they can do is transfer him to Marjorie's hometown of Rugby 
where he quietly worked out the rest of his career behind a desk on full pay. He never returned to his beat. Baby near the yard may well have caught the culprits, but he could never give young PC Collins his life back. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. It's October 1898. A daring, audacious theft on the 11.50 train from Paris's Gare du Nord station leaves the world reeling. A priceless collection of jewels, worth nearly two million pounds today, has been lifted in broad daylight from under the nose of their owner, the Dowager Duchess of Sutherland. While French police believe the crime to have been the work of a gang of master thieves, the detectives at Scotland Yard learn that it is the work of just one man, the cleverest, most light-fingered of jewel thieves in Europe, Harry the Valet. Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boirot for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant Roger Morris. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Written by Nicholas Obregon. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound design by Jacob Booth. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Jacob Booth. Music by Oliver Baines and Dorothy. Macaulay.